Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we start the podcast. Just to give you a flavour of what you are missing out on this week, if you are not a member on patreon.com forward slash tortoise we have a brilliant conversation with Nicholas Dale Leal, the Colombian journalist, where we talk about Gustav Petro's amazing speech at the UN, the upcoming Brazilian election this weekend, and the events at the Venezuelan-Colombian border. Really, really interesting, as well as the deep dive into the war on drugs and what it means. Sinn Féin's spokesperson, uh, Mairead Farrell, is joining us to talk about the budget, give us her feedback. Michael Taft is coming back to talk with uh, Tricia Keelty and Louise Bayliss to give their reaction to Budget 2023. They're all scheduled for this morning, coming in the next few hours. On top of that, we're going back up to the north to talk to Alliance Party MLA, Kate Nicholl. You'll remember, Kate, she was the Lord Mayor of Belfast pre the uh, Stormont elections. Looking forward to catching up with Kate all of those are going to be going out on patreon.com forward slash tortoise as well as our entire back catalogue, one feed, one place. And I almost forgot Shrapnel. This week Shrapnel is out and it's getting rave reviews again. Please join us. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee. It's, you know, it's 5 50 a month, but it means Mike's on and these podcasts keep coming. Thanks for listening. Thanks for support. Thanks for sharing. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back, Martin, for another week of, uh, how do I put it, getting ourselves in more and more trouble. Someone asked me earlier, uh, you know, how are things with you? I said, oh, stay, staying, out, staying out of trouble. And they went quiet. And that was on a Zoom. They just yeah, went see, quiet. I keep telling you to go into politics, Tony. You could still be on holidays till later on this week and not have to worry about anything. I enjoyed, um, if anybody saw the Finna Faller having their thinking and uh, the T-shock. <laughs> That's an oxymoron. You know. the, no, no. the T-shock and the and and the minister for, for housing were walking around with Robert Troy, and I said he was he was showing them his new development. Apparently, they're calling it Mullingar. But he uh, actually came down in the in in the T-shock's car. He came. He, he arrived. Well, in, it, well now, if you ever wanted a visual to let biggest, you know, if that isn't the biggest. Two fingers to the electorate. I do not know what is, Tony. I, I would say, look, you know what was funny? I will say this. Today, there was two stories in the morning. One saying there's been a recommendation to move against inheritance tax rates, you know, make it, make it. My heart bleeds. And then the second one was the Taoiseach saying, but there's no appetite for it. But while he said it, he was standing beside a man who owns 11 houses. So the optics of that were not very good, Taoiseach. I'm sorry. Anyway, enough about enough about domestic politics and, and digs at uh, un, unfashionable digs. We are thrilled to be rejoined on the podcast by our good friend in in in, uh, in Colorado, Konstantin Gordiev. Konstantin, it's good to see you. How are you keeping? Great to see you lads as well. I'm okay, thanks. I mean, it's been, you know, a strange summer full of kind of climate change things uh, on our end here. And of course, the same problems, economic problems that you are facing on uh, in Ireland and in Europe as well. Cost of living, uh, interest rates going up, uh, housing, uh, energy. Yeah. Same as I. You know, so you, uh, you, you've had a mild softening of what, what you call gas prices in the US now and, uh, and, and a little bit of a reaction in the... In the polls whereby you know it seems to be slightly moving back towards joe biden's uh, figures have come off the floor and there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that but there's also like heat waves extremes of heat waves and 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 i mean you're in colorado which is probably mm-hmm. as good a place as you can be considering yet it's already you know seasonally it's it is it is hotter than, than it should be and you meant you you always continue to come back to the climate crisis 
in the new, unfortunately named IRA bill, okay, <laughs> um, Joe Biden has put aside billions to, to start working towards climate action. Has it gotten any? Have you had a look at it? Do you think there's anything in that? There is some. There are some good investments there, and there are some good, um, more ambitious plans in terms of changing the uh, energy infrastructure in the United States, which is really long overdue. Um, the United States has probably more diversified generation. Uh, currently than, say, for example, Europe does, because simply we still have a legacy sufficient production in terms of nuclear. We obviously have natural gas, which has been actively replacing, and as a result of that, also reducing through that replacement dramatically emissions, actively replacing coal. Um, You you mentioned fossil fuels. Yes, some fossil fuels are still being produced, and they're being actually kind of brought back from mouthballing simply because of the pressures on energy prices. Uh, but over in the longer term, I think the bill itself is presents new and ambitious agenda, which hasn't been there before, which is super important, of course. Um, in addition to it, the bill also relates to the issues of the modernization of other forms of infrastructure, which will improve efficiency of use of energy. That's all uh, all very positive. Of course, we are witnessing a really bizarre uh, weather patterns uh, during this summer. You mentioned that here in Colorado, we had... Last week, we had the first half of the week uh, in 100-plus temperatures uh, in Fahrenheit uh, during the peak day uh, temperatures. And then the last couple of days, last three days, actually, we had the highest uh, temperature at 50s. Uh, So you have this massive swing of 70 degrees of Fahrenheit within the week. Uh, between the peak temperatures uh, cannot be sustained. Uh, We blessed this summer of having a little bit more kind of rain uh, here on our end, which is unusual for the summer here, but the Colorado River is completely dry, effectively, right now. It's at the crisis level to the point where we are taking now high um, alpine water out of the lakes in order to sustain electricity generation at the dams in Nevada um, and Arizona, which is insanity, utter complete insanity. We're literally burning, um, you know, you know, if you want sensitive habitat water on generating electricity at this stage. So uh, it's not sustainable. And the new bill, as you said, yeah, I mean, like, look, there's, you know, we can think of more ambitious, perhaps, targets. We can think of more ambitious investments, and it should have happened. Um, But at the very least, it is the first step. Now, one of the things you mentioned is uh, Joe Biden's uh, approval ratings kind of rising above their floor. Yeah, they are above their floor. But say, for example, Ipsos' latest um, opinion polls indicate 39% approval rating um, across all of the voters for Biden. That's pretty disastrous, if you ask me. So, yeah, they're off the floor, but is that that cat bounce, you know, really at that stage? What's interesting as well, approval ratings amongst women are lower than they are amongst men. His approval ratings amongst younger voters are, of course, vastly lower than they are amongst the voters of age 40 and above. So, I mean, it's not particularly great news for the Democratic Party. The only good news for the Democratic Party, and we've seen it in some primaries coming out um, in the last, say, month or so, is that the Republicans are just hell-bent on shooting themselves in yeah. both feet. They're picking you they're know? picking the worst candidates. It's it's literally picking like celebrity candidates who don't belong. Celebrity on the insanity side. Yes, you that's know, what I mean. It's not even like, celebrity of the Hollywood variety. Mm. It's like celebrity on the insanity side. Mm. Is, the, is the IRA bill too little too late? Of course, it is too little, too late. We know that much, you know. It's just the problem is that, you know, whether too little, too late means that we're not just beyond the tipping point in the existential crisis, or are we 
you know, just making things worse for now, but we still will survive as humanity down the road. I mean, that's kind of, you know, where we get into. Um, of course, it is too little too late. The United States have been on the laggard side of uh, environmental policies for decades. Uh, United States' entire economic infrastructure is based not just on the vast consumption of the um, non-sustainable forms of energy, but it also is actually based on other forms of pollution as well, very intensive pollution as well, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, you name it, uh, the U.S. agriculture is loaded with it, unlike most of the European agriculture, which has been cleaned up in the last, I'd say, 20 years, substantially, maybe not fully, but substantially more than the U.S. is. So uh, when we talk about, for example, environment, we tend to think about climate change alone, but the real crisis is not just climate change, it's the entire natural system. You'll you'll destroy biodiversity like that, yeah? Correct. Yeah. So in in Europe, we think, and I teach that to my students, so we think in terms of natural capital. Uh, in the United States, we think in terms of, you know, just, you know, kind of if you want patchwork of smaller solutions, uh, like we still think, for example, that Tesla is the current cutting edge model of the transportation systems um, for the future. It's insane because we're looking at something that is so energy and so pollution intensive as well as toxicity levels of those batteries, the lack of uh, their recycling capacity, um, and so forth. All of these problems are kind of being shoved under the rug in a traditional American approach. But it, to it's not just growth. Tesla. I saw the launch, the recent launch of, of uh, uh, an SUV, electric SUV. I mean, that's, that is, as I laughed at the beginning, that is an oxymoron, uh, an SUV that's electric. It's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, no, of course. And the Europeans also like luxury SUVs that the, Europe is producing, for example, for the U.S. markets and the other global markets as well. Uh, they are equally as pollutant. That's not just Tesla's problem. The thing about it is that Tesla is kind of a poster boy for the solutions. You're right. I mean, there are pickup trucks, there are other forms of transportation that are electric, you know, and that's okay. I mean, I have no problem with that. I think that that's fine. Um, I think the you know comparing the approach, overall cultural approach to economic development and consumption in the United States, uh, you know the view is more the, the more the better. You know versus in Europe, of course, there is a more focus on quality, and as a result of that, you have probably more sustainable I, ways of living. I, I, there's, an, there's a whole argument here we could go back to and wonder if you know historically if much of this was born out of the concept of manifest destiny, you know, where this kind of, oh, yeah. we, had, we had to take advantage of uh, all of the resources of the land, including, unfortunately, at that time, people of color and people of, of other of other races and ethnicities as well. So that, that, that has, that myth has kind of maintained itself in many ways in, in, in the U S but I, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I know we've gone probably a bit further into that than I thought, but I do think it's an interesting con to come back to and, and ask, you know, if you're, if you're at, if you're talking to students, is there, is there that mindset that, that, that that's looked upon differently the, and, you know, cause America has a couple of hundred years of history of this. And that's, you know, you, we only have to look at, um, how they agreed certain lands were were to be allowed for for the native uh, the native tribes, and then they turned around and said, "Well, actually, you know, manifest destiny gives us the the road to take that that land back. We want because we knew it was a gold rush or whatever it is. All of that kind of mentality uh, maybe still permeates through 
and echoes true time? In part, it is. In part, it is. And it's, you know, classroom and uh, student bodies are like laboratories, yes, of society. And of course, they change, but that change is not 100%. It's not sweeping across absolutely everyone. There's heterogeneity, there's tension, there is debate. The good news about, you know, younger generations is that they always are debating. They always are testing the limits of the extremes of the views, which is really wonderful to see. Um, and it's it's actually a productive process. And I actually have more hope for the current younger generation because they are moving away from the ideologies. Uh, up until this current young generation, we always thought of this left-right. We thought communism, capitalism, socialism, all these isms around libertarianism and all that. Um, they've moved on from that. And that's good because they actually now are capable of disagreeing, pretty passionately disagreeing. And I see that in classroom. And then moving from that disagreement right away straight to, okay, so what are the solutions? And when you start talking about the solutions, all of a sudden, you know, if you start thinking in terms of, say, for example, price controls, yes, something that is currently, you know, is being discussed in, in European context in terms of energy, yes, you can posit that question in terms of kind of ideologies and then they still become polarized. But if you move it away and you say, okay, suppose you impose the price control, who gains revenue? who gains subsidy, who pays for that subsidy, who gains profit out of the revenue. And all of a sudden, you start looking at the structure of ownership, you start looking at the structure of use, and all of a sudden, it moves away from ideology. It becomes more pragmatic. It becomes, well, do we want to tax middle class through that kind of mechanism, or do we want to tax, for example, the wealthier? Is the transfer efficient or not? And, you know, it's it's kind of becomes, de, you know, detached from ideology. And as a result of that, you actually have a very healthy, interesting debate and discussion. It's very hard to have that discussion now. Even in Ireland, it's very hard to have the discussion now because we don't do wealth taxes. The We have a property tax that has been flawed since its outset let's tell the truth and it, it, even the government yeah. who, who put it in said we'll reform it they've never reformed it they've never Don't done tell me i wrote a book on that yeah. <laughs> back in the days when they were putting the uh, property tax of course you know i was one of the uh you know there was several of us um authors um of the uh, proposal for the site value tax uh, mm-hmm. to replace the property tax and of course that was accepted by the troika even uh and forced for the Irish government to accept as well. And then, you know, I mean, the Irish government, the Fiona Gale primarily, just decided that, uh, no, that's not going to work because, of course, it would tax heavily um, all the friends of Fiona Gale, the yeah. landed gentry of then it became Then, then it became um, ideological as opposed to rational, I suppose. Exactly. And, yeah. Completely, yeah. Can, yes. can, can yeah. I ask one last question on the US? And I, I promise you I'll move on. I, You know, Goldman Sachs are in the in the in the in an era now they've announced job losses we've seen you know mortgage mortgage advisors losing their jobs we've seen the mortgage market tank um at levels of two, 2007 levels now now no one wants to see people lose their jobs but we, we you you were talking about this concept of creative destruction there's also a need for property prices particularly in some pla- in other places where they've become so inflated for them to come down the, what's your what's your sense on the property market now in the US broadly are, are we are we in a bubble here a bubble territory of course we're in a bubble territory the question is how fast it is deflated and in the United States that deflation currently is a little bit stimid because we have the superficial if you want um 
cushion of the uh, longer-term mortgage rates, which have been at historic lows in the past. So that feed-through of the new mortgage rates being very high and the resulting decline in terms of the demand is still not translating into very significant decrease in terms of the property prices. Property prices in the United States are vastly, vastly in excess of any fundamentals. You cannot find the average home that is available in most of the metro areas that is available for the households of the, say, median income and uh, middle income as well. So kind of a range around the median as well that is acceptable for the middle class consideration. Um, So as a result of that, you kind of really um, in a scenario where, as you said, it is painful process, but we do need the deflation. Rents are in particular extremely high. Rents inflation is in double digits last year, so far year on year. Um, And of course, we're looking at the current younger generation coming out of college with significant debts already incurred uh, on their shoulders, facing the rental markets where they're expected to pay 50% um, and sometimes even more in terms of their rents, um, of their income. It's an utter complete insanity. We're pushing the younger uh, people to stay in the locations uh, around their parents' homes so that they can avoid going into the rental markets. Um, as a result of that, their life cycle earnings are depressed. Their savings and their life cycle are depressed. Their ability to buy homes is reduced, even though on the surface they're spending less on rents today, primarily because around their parents' homes, they don't find the same quality jobs. They don't find the same quality career prospects, the same opportunities for growth. And if you translate it into the social implications, you have the longer term problems for the for that generation of those who are staying at home. Not only they're facing the reduced career prospects, but they also are facing the lower uptake of lifelong learning and reskilling and skills acquisition down the road as well. We know that a lot of research is starting to show that because we're starting to have the data feed through from Generation X uh, and onwards as well. And this is just continues to rise. So. When we talk about the reduced mobility uh, in the United States of the you know, younger generation, it is integrally linked to the property market. We need a massive deflation in terms of the property prices. I think that applies here too, Constantine. Uh, it's oh, diff- absolutely. I, I think it's I difficult. Mean, yeah. I, I think Look, it's I mean, difficult the to see report. short-term solutions, though. There, there aren't oh, short-term. You're completely right. Completely, you're completely right. So the problem with the structural systems like complex, big systems, social and economic systems, like, you know, say, for example, governance and democracy, like climate change, like housing, like the cost of living and the balance in the cost of living against the income, um, availability of public services versus private services and so forth. All these big systems cannot be fixed in the short run. So we have governments right now in Europe, we mentioned that before, in energy markets running around like headless chickens trying to implement patches on a gaping shark wound of the structurally higher energy costs and structurally lower quality of supply of energy, yes? And of course, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how many subsidies you're going to unroll. At the very best, you're going to alleviate issues in the short run. Bigger systems require long-term approach to those solutions. You can't just simply miraculously imagine something like, say, privatization is going to solve everything or nationalization is going to solve everything. You have to have a balance between the public ownership, private ownership. You have to have the market, which is properly pricing information, but also gets the right information, where there is an oversight, 
where there's a regulation and enforcement mm. of that regulation. And we've been, hold on a second, you know, we've been talking about this shit since 2007. Pardon exactly. Exactly. No, that's where, that's why I, because I recall, I remember in a, in a lobby of, a, of an Irish bank, the, um, the central, the, Financial regulator, if you recall, do you remember this? The, 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 the central bank had they set up a financial regulator's office, all of this, you know, it was going to do all of these extra things. And they had a little pop up in one of the lobbies of one of the main banks. And it was almost felt hand in glove, if that made sense. And we had this, remember the, 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 the idea of right, light touch regulation. And we know, yep. where, and, and we see this now whereby those chickens are coming home to roost, whereby the market will do what its job is to extract the maximum amount of profit at the minimum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't, and it's have... pretty good at doing that, by it's, the way. You know, like I, when, mean... <laughs> I, I, I recall Martin. That's five... why we're all suffering. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Five years ago, Martin, we had Lorcan Surin here, and people said the property market had failed, and and he's the rental market had failed, and he said it hasn't. He said the rental market is saying if we can put six people in in a, in a bedroom in three bunk beds, it's doing its job. He said that's not the, that's not a market failure. That's a regulation. And an industry and failure. we had pretty much the same statement this week coming from the EU saying that they you know the market is broken no the market is not broken it's working perfectly for those who are making the most money out of it yeah, like, of course. Well, well this but is why this, this is a problem yeah so like when you mentioned for example light touch regulation in a property market so in Ireland right now rental markets okay there's quite a bit of regulation there's a lot of it okay some of it is not enforced. So there might be a light touch enforcement of regulation, but a lot of it is also kind of, you know, bends your mind when you actually think about that, yes? So, I mean, like, the, like for example, yes, um, you know, RTB, what job does RTB perform as such, really? The idea there is that it will police the standard, yes, between the landlord uh, of the relationship, between the landlord and the tenant. That's okay, but it seems to be not working in that way. Instead, it collects vast amounts of information, re, you know, kind of relaunches its own website. Everyone has to re-register once again. You have to update all of the material when you don't need to update it. And when you do need to update it, it's extremely hard and painful to do so. So, I mean, that's the type of the regulation where you have a combination of the wrong regulation together with the light enforcement of the right part of the regulation. And as a result of that, the entire market is skewed. You don't even have to look at the, sorry, Tony, the, no, the RTD. No, no, you, can, you can look at the the standards in public office that we have set up where <laughs> where nobody is held accountable for anything. Of course, but that's the good good old banking regulations. I wouldn't surpri be surprised if the old bank banks regulators are now employed in CEPA because you're right, of course, but there is no accountability for anything. Yes? No, but we you started put, with the banks, still no accountability for them. Do, do, can I come back to one thing about, okay, so I want to come back now and broaden this out to this idea of this misnomer of the cost of living crisis. So first of all, just the idea of a cost of living crisis, it reminds me of the idea of a constant of affordable housing. They'll say on this development, we're going to have 20% affordable housing. So by definition, the other 80% is unaffordable, okay? Unaffordable, yeah. <laughs> so in this cost of living crisis, this is the cost it's going to cost. So this is the cost of survival or the cost of not dying if we want to be really dramatic about it. How, but it's a branding issue now as well and what we've seen during the global financial crisis leading out of that and then into the pandemic was a sustained wealth extraction from the bottom sort of 40 percent 50 percent going towards the 10 percent more so to the five percent and we've seen it ramping up in certain ways 
this is also a wealth extraction exercise when you look at these ideas, especially since central banks across the globe think the only way to do anything is actually throw 0.75 basis points on the interest rate, which is going to you know hit the hit Joe public and actually make the banks feel a lot better about themselves. Yeah, but I would uh, I would actually argue that most of the extraction doesn't happen from the bottom forty percent. Most of the extraction in Ireland happens probably from the you know fortieth percentile up to about eightieth percentile. Yeah, okay? yeah, that's so fair. So it's the middle class and upper middle class because of the taxation system, uh, which is extremely progressive. By the way, I'm not saying by saying extremely progressive, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's just the reality of it. Okay. Um, you know, and we had recent reports on that. We had the reports from the, uh, you know, we had recent reports relating to the current budgetary uh, issues, and the central bank also issued recent report also on the, you know, corporate taxation imbalances um, and the incidence of corporate taxation befalling primarily the multinationals. Um, and then, of course, we have also the heavy dependence on the income tax side, also on multinational employees as well. So what we have right now is we can we have this continued process of extraction by the not just state but also by the market and within that state also acts as a part of the market as well um, in the energy sector. So what we see now is we have higher prices for those who can pay. For those who cannot pay, there is a transfer through those higher prices from the likes of the ESB profits back. The state kind of subsidizes their consumption, okay, and in the meantime, the top management of the ESB, the top management in the state, skims off the profit and distributes itself a dividend effectively through their own wages. So this is a type of the system where you have the state agency, ESB in this case, or part state agency, participating actively in the process of the, if you want, extraction from the economy through the market force. The state then uses its own power to present itself to be more benevolent and for political and voting reasons as well, to transfer some of the money to those who actually genuinely need it. And that's fair enough. Okay, that's good enough, even though the motivation for it is completely wrong. But the whole scheme itself is that of the indirect taxation. And it's worse and than that is... because they have a, they have a captured market. Because if you're in that bottom, say bottom 20 percentile, yeah. you're stuck on that. You can't. You don't have the. You might. You might not have the money to assure having that direct debit in place. So you 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 can't switch. You you might have to have a prepay. So you have to pay that tariff. You may have to. So it's even it's even worse. You you're in the you're you don't have the flexibility of someone who's maybe in the in the top sixty percentile who's able to say, well, actually, I'm moving to this provider. What can you, you do for me? You you know. And it so- gets worse because when you put that scheme in place, the longer term, the cost of energy goes up. So those those at the bottom who are receiving the subsidy today pretty soon find themselves in a situation where that subsidy is not sufficient. And they are going back into rationing. They're going back into cutting back on other activities, such as even including things like food, including things like education, including things like quality of housing, safety of housing and all. And, and yeah, it, it just keeps, this vicious but, cycle keeps repeating itself. But into that as well, the government have provided a caution for what you would call the, the the middle classes, where they can avoid higher electricity bills through uh, grants, retrofits, grants for electric cars, which they have done, which they have taken all of this up. And yet where it's most needed, there was nothing targeted. So that, that bottom 26% percentile is doubly hit, whereas at least there is some cushion 
for the rising energy costs for the middle classes. That's not Martin. The can we, can we, no, can we in that first constant? I want to say that's not actually. It's you'd want to be really in the in the top forty, top thirty percent to have gone through all well, the like even, yeah, yeah. Like you need to splash. 35 to 50 grand to do this like it's not cheap and that's with the grants and with the subsidies there's no one-stop shop it's still all done arse ways you know there's no the, the the government don't have an argument for this it should be a zero percent loan at the very least for everybody and paid out over the next whatever it is you know that's the way to go it's a, actually tony you you point to something you know that is very interesting in this context yes it's the idea of the how do you assure that there is a reasonable return for households to improve their efficiency and reduce their energy consumption, and that that return is co-shared with the society and with the economy at large. And you nailed it. It you know we had the period, very long period of zero interest rates. The state effectively can fund most of the activities at the near zero interest rates. If the state passes these savings in terms of the longer term loans, for example in order to develop the you know more if you want energy efficient housing stock the state then benefits over the long period of time in terms of the reduced demand more efficiency in terms of the grids and stuff like that so that solution should be available to all of the households irrespective of their levels of income and in fact probably should be more advantageously available to those who are on a lower income and yet they are not because they don't have cash to put down they don't have access to the banking at the same level to the same loans and so forth. So that's a structural long-term example of the solution, which has been effectively not, not put in place by the state for whatever reasons, perhaps of the short-sightedness, perhaps of you know venality of the interest groups. I don't know. I'm not asking you to speculate, but I will ask you this. We're into coming into a budget now. We're told about 6.7 billion of a, of a war chest. We've already heard rumors that it's going to be a couple of billion more than that because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at a, a, the big, the, the best budget surplus in the EU, Constantine. We're sitting here with, with this money now. Yeah. Um, I spoke to Michael Taft last week and he reckons, you know, within the EU fiscal rules, which aren't in play at the moment, we could probably do double what they're what they're pledging. But he said you couldn't even spend that money, Tony. You wouldn't have the you wouldn't have enough builders to to actually use. So so that's right. absolutely yeah. I, I I don't dispute that. But what I what I'm what I'm my ask to you though is the end the era of low interest rates, we've missed that boat. Okay, we've missed that. Uh, we're still, but Ireland is still considered actually like this three countries given, no, sorry, four in the EU currently given that kind of uh, positive outlook. And Ireland is one of one of the four, which means we're, I think our rate is still, 20 year rate is still around 1.8. It's pretty good going, Constantine, if you can, if you can still land that kind of yeah. money for 20 year money. Should we be now taking this saying, well, look, we cannot uh, uh, go on like this, or as has been argued, across the mainstream and i mean uh, is that they're saying one-off measures give them 600 quid off their esb bill and 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 one-off measures you know um a couple of vat uh, reduction on on fuel all of these things what's your take on it well first of all things like vat reduction on fuel perhaps should be considered they're not necessarily the traditional one-off measures where you actually use resources you are foregoing collection of some resources but that foregoing of the collection of the resources is going to be partially offset by the losses you would have generated by people cutting back on use of energy and therefore of course the bad bills would go down anyways as a result of that so some considerations like that unfortunately we're in acute crisis and this crisis is we have no idea how long it's going to last and how deep it's going to get. 
Um, there has been some alleviation in terms of, for example, gas prices in more recent weeks in Europe on the continent. Uh, but how long that's going to last, we don't know. We have to prepare to be able to deploy some measures that are short-term and they're literally emergency triage measures. So the likes of 600, you know, kind of support and maybe perhaps even higher support for the really lowest income households um, should be considered and should be budgeted for. If you don't spend the money, okay. If you spend less money that you budgeted for, okay. You don't want to end up in a situation where here's January and you have people, you know, freezing in their homes or starving. So that's one, that's step one. And it's unfortunate scenario that we have to put in place. But the other thing is very important to consider that you mentioned that we are still at a historically fairly low interest rates. We're still at a historic scenario where Irish economy has potential to grow, has that potential that is both anchored in terms of its demographics, but also in terms of global position of Ireland. And so as a result of that, we should be investing. Ireland should be most aggressive country in amongst the uh, Euro 15, okay, the old Euro 15, yes, advanced Eurozone economies um, in terms of its investment. And unfortunately, it isn't. We're not investing in the infrastructure sufficiently enough. Uh, and I don't mean just roads. I mean, actually, I mean less than roads, other things outside of that. Uh, we are not investing enough in energy infrastructure. We know that now. It's a big uh, gap there. We're not investing in housing. Uh, we are probably underinvesting systemically in education. We're certainly underinvesting systemically in healthcare. All of these things have to be sorted in the next or shored up in the next, you know, say, seven to ten years, maybe twelve years, uh, before there is a structural, another structural shift in the economy uh, where the, you know, Western demographics are pivoting us, the West. I mean, us, not just Ireland itself, towards kind of Japanification of growth, if you want. Um, slower growth, more reliant on technological progress and technological innovation and technological displacement. So as a result of that, we have to think in terms of the future now. And if we don't, then this current energy crisis is going to be you know, effectively a laughing joke uh, compared to but what we will be facing in the future. Is, is the problem that exists not the same problem both in the US and in Ireland? that our political class know the cost of everything, but not the value of that capital investment. You're right, of course. The problem uh, is fundamentally at that level. The, pro pro the problem fundamentally is that we no longer have political class, which is uh, interested or incentivized to be interested in the public interest, society's interest, okay? We have political class, which is self-interested fully. And again, that goes back to the same, the market and politics works perfectly well. It's just that the way we structured the market is completely, you know, destructive to our own goals. But what's interesting about it, is the United States uh, similar to Ireland? In a way, I think Ireland is the harbinger of doom for the United States in that context. United States still is, in, you know, United States is still receiving people in flows. We still receive in the United States human capital from abroad. We still receive savings of people from abroad. We still see investment coming into the United States from abroad. Now it's reducing in terms of its ability to attract uh, these inflows of capital, but it still is there. Ireland is now sending people abroad once again. I mean, 70% of young people in Ireland are considering immigrating. This is the crisis, which is far worse than anything that energy crisis could ever throw at us. And I also think, Constantine, that if you asked people who in older age groups, 
would they emigrate for a better quality of life? I don't think you'd get any difference I, in, I, in, in results. I don't know, Martin. You might, just, you might not. Yeah, but you know, 70, well, those, those 70, between, Okay, hang on, Martin, just give you the statistics on this. It's important that we say this. And this is, this, I don't, not to disprove you, but after the global financial crisis around 2011, it was, it was around 40, 45% of young people were considering emigrating. Now it's 70. Okay. So that's really, really like that's a, a multiple times worse because obviously the idea of paying, as Constantine said, 50% of your income at rent, if you can get somewhere to rent, is it just a huge disincentive but straight the away? The same disincentive exists for those up to what we would have considered yes, but, 30s. Uh, you know, will never own their house. Will I, ever, ever. Oh, yeah. So, how do you define the young people? Then? Yeah. That's what you're saying, Martin. Yeah. I agree with you that those in the 30s and quite a few people in the 40s are in a very similar boat as well. The thing when you have to think about this is that. A lot of this, um, what we call younger people, okay, for me, they're younger people because they're younger than me, right? You know, um, you know, th- those, uh, what, what is the se- selection bias for those who are more likely to immigrate out of Ireland than those who are more likely to stay in Ireland? And historically, in Ireland's history, throughout the centuries, there has been more people with a more human capital who were able to emigrate and less people with a physical capital like stock of land or housing in their possession or in their family possession, who were more likely to stay, okay? So as a result of that, we have exactly the same scenario right now, and it's just going to continue this way. And the problem is that it is the younger people, whether they're 30s or 40s, still same as well, I would put them there as well, with the high levels of human capital, who are increasingly more and more important to the economy and to the economy's ability to generate rents and to generate the social services to provide to those who are more land-based or real property-based. Yeah. So, you know, it's if, say, in the 19th century, people who were emigrating out of Ireland with human capital, risk-takers, entrepreneurs, um, skilled workers, and so forth, they were leaving behind the stock of capital, which was the most productive at the time, agricultural land, uh, housing, and things like that. The society was still able to survive, not particularly well, we know that, because the levels of well-being in Ireland were declining, but at least it was still uh, able to survive. In the, say, this century, in the next, say, 50 years or so, immigration of those who are the most productive is going to leave those who least productive vastly worse off. That's, so I mean, listen, lads. I, it's I'm a model th- th- of the economy which is not sustainable for both participants. So if the likes of the constituency of the current powers, uh, parties in power uh, really is kind of saying, okay, that's fine. Let the young people live. We're going to continue owning our homes, pubs, and you know our buildings and so forth, and the land, and we will be okay. The answer is no, you're not going to be okay because it is the young people who are generating the value in the modern economy. It is not your pubs. It is not your land which is generating that value. Can I give you a round of applause for that? Would that be out of line if I yeah, gave you a round that, of applause that, for that? That, that, is, that is absolutely a fantastic assessment and in a way that I hadn't even heard it outlined before. And I, it's, I'm always uncomfortable talking about people in terms of capital and human capital, but you're spot on. And if we lose that, we know that it's... we. It's a failure of society, but it's also it's also the Ouroboros where it's eating itself. It's just it's just insane. I've one last thing, and I know when we spoke nearly, I think it's what are we coming up on? Um, 
over 240 days ago when when Russia invaded Ukraine, you spoke about your your friends and your family in Russia and in Ukraine and how they were your brothers and your sisters, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles and all of the all of this. We have seen um you also spoke about the leader of Russia as a as a despot but a man who had the support of people in the Kremlin around him. We have seen reversals that we didn't anticipate. Maybe we anticipated some of them, but certainly not the scale of them in the last while. And it was speculated yesterday, we were spoke to Tom Clonan on the podcast and, and, and Gavin Sheridan, they were talking about the idea of that um, Putin might not want to go meet um, Xi Jinping next week because maybe someone will change the change the locks on the Kremlin as, as he's heading out. You know, uh, can I ask you? You you spoke about that support network that he had and and the popularity that that he maintained and still seems to maintain in in large part. But I saw today, you know, videos of people on on Russian media get antsy for the first time. The special operation is not going very well, and there there's an admission now coming out. Do you, do you think that's changed things at all in the dynamic? Does it make it better or more dangerous? Well, those two hundred forty days were a long time ago. Mm. Two hundred days ago, uh, two hundred forty days ago, we had the environment where there was still some independent media in Russia. There was some percolation of independent media in Russia. We had some protests in Russia, maybe not on massive scale, but on some scale. Okay, Today, what happened in those 240 days is that the uh, Kremlin has managed to tighten the bolts very efficiently. Um, it is effectively now, I mean, like you walk out in a wrong outfit into the streets, you know, and if the local cop decides that you are protesting against the special operation, you know, you're going to be detained. So um, in, independent media is completely pu- was pushed out completely into the either West or whatever you want to call it, Baltic republics and the rest of it as well. So um, on one hand, that actually acts to solidify the control that Putin has. The current offensive against the Russian you know, forces there by Ukrainian forces has been both very fast, very dramatic and very successful. Or at least, you know, judging by the reports that we're getting. It's, of course, not the same what the Russians are getting there as well. But it's starting to percolate and starting to feed into the society. Kremlin is not dependent on society. Kremlin controls society. So no matter how many protests you're going to have in Moscow, um, how antsy people will get, yes, there is a feedback loop from that to the decision makers, but that is not a direct one. It's not something that you should be, you know, kind of look at it and say, all right, there's going to be change in power, most likely. The real pressure for change of power in power is happening inside of the Kremlin. We don't know what's happening there right now, but I can tell you, heads are rolling. I guarantee you, heads are rolling. And I guarantee you that there is right now, it still is a kind of benign, you know, Indian summer there in, you know, in Russia. I can tell you that all of the Siloviki are sitting right now on their duchess and shaking in their boots because they do not know who is going to be next. Because this is... Yeah, it's 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 really very public uh, humiliation for Putin and for the um, you know Siloviki, you know power brokers. Um, you know, if you look at say, for example, you divide society into the civil society, um, and you have the then of course you have economy and you have the power structures. Um, it is the power structures which are visibly failing, publicly failing um, in Russia, and they're the ones who hold the most power. The question is always um, not so much whether they would be willing to get rid of the of Putin, but really whom would they replace Putin with? 
because if they have a viable alternative to Putin, they will do so. If they don't, and so far they haven't really had one um, amongst their own ranks that is, you know, visibly indicative or even, you know, kind of potentially capable of taking the power, they won't because they know that if they get rid of Putin right now and there is a power vacuum, you know, look, I mean, it's not going to last for long and whoever going to come in is going to replace that. And it's ultimately self-interest for them. Do we continue shaking on our boots uh, that we're going to get, you know, effectively cleansed um, in one of those, if you want, big fiascos um, and scapegoating processes that follow it? Or do we uh, risk ourselves out in a complete reshake and restructuring of the power system? There's, there's a very dark. There's a very dark joke I can make now, but it is true that a lot of people have been found to be walking too close to windows recently. In, yeah, but, it, but it's very it's, yeah, smoking on the balconies as well. It's yeah. very Game of well. Thrones, really. It is extremely Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, of it's course very, it is. It's it's incredibly gay, and it's very reminiscent of of imperialism of past. You know, do you want to keep your land and your pastures? Oh, far worse than that. I mean, most of the imperialism that we think of, you know, in any sort of the relevant memory that we might have, is much less dark. Okay, but Russian politics have always been like that, and Russian, you know, Russian power structures have always been like that. This is a country which sent, you know, during the Joe Stalin years, twenty million of people into effectively gulag and consigned to death. You know? It's actually so, strange. I, I think that the, the there is more chance of a European spring than a Russian spring um, when it comes to, to security of politics. That's true, but it also is the uh, differences in terms of the different societies' capacity to withstand pain and willingness to withstand pain, yes? I mean, Russian society is much more collectivist society. Um, it is a society which is based on the historical notion of... Uh, well, I mean, exceptionalism, just like American society. So as a result of that, in the Russian case, it is the willingness to withstand pain, which is aligned with that um, endurance through pain, which is aligned with that historical experience of uh, exceptionalism. So um, it's unfortunate. Um, this is one of the reasons why the Russian society hasn't really developed robust uh, democratic structures, um, hasn't developed robust polemic uh, type of society. Um over the centuries as well. Uh, but that's what we have. And the reality right now is that um, in that environment, it's the internal politics of the elites which determine what's going to happen. Very interesting. We have growing indications um, that the elites are now kind of finding themselves in, this, in the scenarios where the old established order is clearly already collapsed. So there's some indications, for example, that within the Russian power elites, there have been long-term animosities that were brewing over years, if not decades in the past. And those were suppressed before by kind of unwritten law of the relationship and the Kremlin being the regulator of these relationships between the individuals. And apparently that is gone now. They are at each other's throat right now. Um, a lot of them, not all, of course, but there's some very interesting ones. Um, you know, like, you know, for example, in St. Petersburg, there has been very long-term issues between the governor um, and the, the mayor and uh, some other ones as well. And they have been percolating in the last, those 240 days, you know, and uh, they are amplifying as well. Whereby before, um, Kremlin acted as an uh, effective arbiter and kept it under the lead and kept it, you know, at the kind of, you know, balanced levels. 
Constantine, thanks very much for having this conversation with us. As always, love having you on. And a couple of people, as I, I mentioned to you, knew you were coming on with delight and said, get that in the can. Let's talk to Constantine. So thanks again, <laughs> Constantine, for coming on and chatting with us. Hey, thanks, remind- Martin. It's always a pleasure. Tony, thanks a lot. Not at all. It's, it's always a pleasure I, being I, with I, you guys. I remember, I remember one phrase, you know, elections are easy, but Russia needs to still fix the novel. You know, it's always Russian literature we come back to. <laughs> But um, yeah, look, I, I it is I, true, and it's interesting. You know, I need to actually for the next time I'll try to dig up something interesting happening in the Russian literature that is new as well. Because you are correct. I mean, Russian literature has endured throughout all of these periods, and actually covered a wide range of uh, positions as well, from the kind of nationalist views to also you know much more, if you want, dramatic ideological philosophy analysis views as well. So it's you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, look again. I would all, look for our younger listeners. Don't read it until you're into your late twenties, thirties. But other than that, enjoy it. <laughs> read away yeah, at home with mom and dad. In this room. <laughs> He's breaking up. All right, we leave it there, folks. We're we're back to we're back we're back tomorrow with Owen O'Brien. Um, Owen has joined us to give us the Sinn Fein perspective on the budget. So more to come. Talk to you all very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.